Hello everyone, my name is Joshua Gilliland, attorney blogger on Bowtie Law and the Legal Geeks. Today, we're going to talk about the truth is out there. <laughs> Celebrate the 20th anniversary of the X-Files. And there's only one person alive that I know who is an attorney who can handle this as a PMK on the X-Files. And that's Caitlin Murphy at Access Data. Caitlin, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Josh. I'm happy to be here talking with you about my favorite, one of my favorite subjects. <laughs> it is. It's a great subject. And as the world probably knows, we both watched this frequently at UC Davis. We did. Go Aggies. So back in the day, I fondly remember in 1996 to 1997, watching the X-Files on Sunday nights in the dorm. Do you have what were your memories during that time? Very similar. You know, as as uh, our watchers should know, Josh and I were both in the same dorm at UC Davis, and it was a real ritual every Sunday night at 9 p.m. back in the days before on-demand or DVRs or, you know, Netflix streaming. You would have to actually wait for an actual place in time when you could go and watch your favorite show and People, you know, there weren't a lot of people out in the hallways at 9 p.m. on a Sunday because everybody was watching the X-Files. And uh, I don't think I ever had more pleasure in watching the show than that season where we were all in the dorms at Davis because uh, I felt like, you know, there was such a camaraderie around the show. I, I agree. You know, my roommates and I would watch it together or, you know, in the student lounge, you know, a bunch of people would gather there and watch it. Mm -hmm. And there wasn't talking, there wasn't, I mean, everyone was quiet, glued to the TV set because they wanted to know what was happening and they, they were absorbing it. And I don't know if there's any other programs that college students are doing that with right now. Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I think... Um the X-Files came around at such a, a special point in time, you know, kind of the birth of the internet right around the show. And, um, you know, people were kind of like the first listservs and discussion groups online kind of grew up around the X-Files. I uh, freely admit that I was part of those uh, fan fiction, you know, people writing stories using the characters. I, I know all of that, a lot of that started with Star Trek, but the X-Files is really what took it online and, and created like, you know, a worldwide community around a show where you really felt that, like we said, every every Sunday at 9, um, whatever time zone you're in, you know, you were part of a huge community <laughs> watching the same show together and, you know, living the ups and downs of Mulder and Scully as they went through the uh, the mythology and the uh, standalone episodes, Monster of the Week episodes. Agreed. And, I mean, for me, it continued throughout Davis and law school. Yes. That people would get together and watch and People knew not to call during that time. <laughs> That's right. Everybody knew not to call me at that time. I would hang up on people. <laughs> I mean, things came to a grinding halt because Sunday nights, that, that's what we were doing. And maybe, I mean, I've seen some of the previews for shows coming out this fall. You know, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic about things like Sleepy Hollow and Almost Human. Mm -hmm. You know, Fox did a good run with Fringe. Which again, it was you know, kind of goes back to as an homage to the X Files, right? And it's I hope they kind of stay towards their sci-fi roots in being able to have good sci-fi programming, programming that we can all you know, rally around. Yeah, seriously. I, I you know I, I remember watching the X Files in law school, but you know as you know we both graduated from law school in in 2002. And 9-11 uh, happened right in the kind of middle of that, and I, I really think. Um, you know, we when we're watching this show for the for the broadcast today on 9/11 yesterday, and I do think that was partially the death knell for the X Files. So I do remember watching it the first part of law school, but then the second part I didn't watch it as much, and I just think that people had less of a taste for government conspiracies and the darkness, and you know, the, all the things that made the show great. It was just after that event, it kind of you know that kind of dissipated a little bit. That that want for that a bit. Well, you know, it had been on for, what, nine years? And it had been on for nine years, and David Duchovny left the show, and Gillian Anderson largely left the show, so. But maybe we shouldn't relive sad things. We should relive good things. Let's talk about the 90s, when when, yeah. we, when we all knew that we, deep down, we all got along. Sure, we, we fought over things, and there was that 96 <laughs> election, and that impeachment. 
down, we all loved each other. We did. It was a much better time. And what really the reason we decided to do this podcast is it's been 20 years since the show came on the air, which I really can't believe uh, ages me quite a bit. <laughs> I remember me, I should say. I remember when it came on when I was in high school. And oh yeah. I would watch it after work. I worked at a movie theater and wore a bow tie. So for my first job, I actually. So did I. No wonder we're so uh, simpatico. <laughs> and for those who haven't seen us together before, you know, back in the day, we cut our teeth as, you know, at CT summation in the early days of the federal rules of civil procedures being being amended. And we traveled across the country. And so we had road shows and everything. So we presented together many times. There were definitely references to Mulder and Scully with, with uh, in regard to you and me, Josh. We were the team. It was fun. And the nation team. <laughs> it, it was fun. And, and it was. It was nice to actually get to do an homage to those days and the show simultaneously. Yeah, and in fact, I started watching the show in high school because so many people kept coming up to me and saying, oh, there's this new show on TV, and the lead character really looks like you. you got to see this woman. She really looks like you. And at the time, I was wearing my hair like Scully. I, I had like a little kind of bob. And, uh, yeah, I, I got enough times had somebody say that to me that I thought, okay, I'm going to turn this show on. It's probably, you know, halfway into the first season. And uh, from then on, I was hooked. Just so the record's clear, in high school, I was never compared to Gillian Anderson. <laughs> no, nor David Duchovny. <laughs> well, I was, uh, I was Scully for, well, talking about my geek cred when it comes to this show. I was Scully for Halloween twice. Uh, dyed my hair red, redder than it is now for for that occasion. I also went to an X-Files convention on Mare Island in Vallejo. Uh, yes, I did. I actually conventioneered. Um, what else? I, I was a frequent contributor to listservs and fanfic sites uh, in the 90s and have pretty much a reputation amongst most people who know me as the biggest X-Files fans they know. And I can Rattle off the plots to most episodes by name if you quiz me. <laughs> you know X-Files like I know Star Trek and Doctor Who. So exactly. This is why I come to you. I, <laughs> I love the show. I do have a couple seasons on DVD, and I have been watching them on Netflix. But you do have a command of the subject matter unmatched <laughs> with anyone I've met before. We, always have, we all have our little areas of expertise. It's a beautiful thing. <laughs> so with that, let's let's do the merging of our expertise because we're both attorneys. Uh, you yes. were Hastings, I was McGeorge, I was O one, you were O two, we were both. Oh, you were O one. That's right. Yeah, which which did you know? Graduating at the end of two thousand one, there was optimism. There was a lot of stress, but September eleventh did derail a lot of things, mm -hmm. and I've been thinking heavily about that. So. Uh, but with that, let's let's focus on the positive, and let's talk about Humbug. Humbug. So this episode of The X-Files, which came uh, to us in season two of the show, I believe, uh, is a classic, one of my favorites. And it's, uh, it's a standalone or a monster of the week episode, so those are that's kind of a, a distinguishing characteristic for those who, who don't know the show as well as Josh and I do. There's the conspiracy theory shows that kind of run an arc through the entire series. And there are standalone episodes that can be watched, you know, as if they are not part of a larger series. And this is one of those. Mulder and Scully travel to a village or a town in South Florida that's populated entirely by circus freaks. And they go to investigate a series of strange murders that have occurred there. Uh, of the freaks themselves, and uh, meet various interesting and, and colorful characters along the way, uh, and encounter some legal issues as well. So let's talk about the legal issues Caitlin and I identified. And it's, it's always fun watching two lawyers issue spot. And <laughs> Reminds me of law school uh, exams. <laughs> you know, this could make exams a lot more fun. More fun. Uh, you know, and we should probably say, let's do something like this at a legal tech or an ILTA, because I think we would pack a room. 
that would be really fun. Good idea. Write that down. <laughs> I'll, I'll tweet it later. Okay. <laughs> and so we have Lenny, who had a conjoined twin. So he has this big lump on the side of him, and he has this, like, cloth over it. Well, as we deal with this issue of what's going around and taking a big bite out of people, we learn it's the conjoined twin actually can disengage and, like, has a big suction mouth thing on it. <laughs> A true X-Files growth-out moment. <laughs> you know, how can we make a scary baby puppet freak people out? And they succeeded. Because, I mean, they it, did. you only see it very quickly. It's covered in goo and blood, and it moves very quickly. Uh, but if they follow the Steven Spielberg Jaws formula, and like, you only see quick glimpses of it and moves mm -hmm. kind of the Akira speed lines as it comes at somebody, which was very effective. And and making it super creepy. And it's taken bites out of people and then goes back and re-engages. So first thing I start thinking about is, are you your brother's keeper? Right. And what are your thoughts on the legal issues with this conjoined twin disengaging and then taking a bite out of people? Well, there are a few issues. Number one being that, in my mind, is can you consider these two people to be separate individuals? Okay, you know, they're twins. Uh, generally, twins aren't considered one individual, but one needs the other to survive. The, the, the conjoined, the, the small twin, Leonard, lives in Lanny's abdominal cavity he's got like Lenny's got a Lanny I'm sorry has a special kind of carved out area in his abdominal cavity that Leonard as Josh described kind of suckers into and he can't really live Leonard without you know having some sort of like resource like that to cling on to kind of like a mistletoe in a tree or something and so you kind of get into this issue of do they really have separate and are they really separate entities? Do they have separate intents? Do they have, are they separate bio entities? And, and if, if they're not, can Lanny be held responsible for Leonard's crimes? And Josh, you look like you have something to say in this area. I'll pass it back over to you. <laughs> it's fascinating to think about because Lenny is a cognitive human being. Mm -hmm. Technically, Leonard is human should be considered human just because he was born attached to a twin. And so just from our like view of what is human under the you know, 14th Amendment, you think he would qualify as a U.S. citizen. But on the other level, he seems feral in nature and doesn't behave like a human being. And he behaves very animalistic because he disconnects and he goes out looking for another person to connect to. And it's not like he has communication skills or any of the qualities that we would think would make somebody human. So it's just on that issue alone and being able to go, could you try Leonard for murder or homicide? It's kind of confusing from a little yeah, it would almost be like trying a baby. And we, we talked a little bit about um, diminished capacity or inability to um, create, to have mens rea because he's, you know, he's basically a humanoid creature. He's, he's not a fully formed person. He can't survive on his own. Uh, you kind of get into, like you said, some interesting 14th Amendment issues there. Um, the other one uh, I, the other issue I, I kind of came up with is if Leonard is just looking for a home, which is what he's what what you realize throughout the episode is his Lanny is actually dying. He's got cirrhosis of the liver, uh, and Leonard can sense this because he's kind of attached into him like a bio you know mass, and he's looking for a new home to go to. So he's actually not trying to kill these people who are killed by having a, a large gaping wound to their abdomen where Lenny, Lan, Leonard is actually trying to attach to them like they're a new brother. So there's another issue in that he's really not trying to kill anybody. And he doesn't, we're not even sure if he has the mental capacity to realize that he did kill somebody the first time he did it. So in that case, could he be tried for murder? What, what, what degree? Yeah, it, it'd almost be like just a homicide 
and negligent homicide is what you'd be going after uh, on Leonard. But if Lenny knows that Leonard's going out and killing people and is not doing anything to stop it, Lenny's responsibility is different because he, he knows his brother is dangerous and out killing people and doing nothing to stop it. And if there's any part of the country that would understand a medical condition like this, it'd be one in which a, in where a bunch of circus performers and carnival acts reside because you you have the sheriff who used to be you know the the dog boy the dog boy that's right <laughs> and so you couple that and it's like okay there would be an understanding medical professional to go see because of this very unique condition taking place but that knowledge i think would actually create criminal and civil liability for lenny mm-hmm but, I mean, what civilly, how are you going to go after a guy who, you know, carries luggage for a living? Right, um, right. You're going to go after him criminally because he's, because of his inaction, people are dying. Yeah, he's, and, and we talked about, you know, maybe he's even aiding or abetting or uh, aiding after the fact. He's not, you know, he, he's obvious, it becomes obvious throughout the episode that he knows that uh, Leonard has been the one committing these crimes. He's been aware of it for quite a while. So I think there's, you know, three or four murders that occur before uh, they, uh, Leonard is stopped in quite a spectacular way at the end of the episode. Um, but yeah, Lanny's got this knowledge and he's basically like harboring Leonard after he's committed these crimes. So yeah, we definitely got some causes of action against Lanny, the, the kind of regular twin as well. Um, and with Leonard, you know, the, the idea that he's attacking people with a, not the intent to kill them, but the intent to just find a new home still doesn't relieve him of all responsibility because somebody's dead. But then, you know, you do have this defense of diminished capacity of some sort. I guess they'd have to put Leonard in a some sort of psychological profile <laughs> evaluation while he's hooked up to a incubator so there i don't know but a psychologist, <laughs> logistics baffle the mind yeah, it, it, but a psychologist would go this is a feral creature a feral baby <laughs> it doesn't act like a human and so it's, yeah it's very messy from a legal perspective yeah very messy oh and the final thing that i that i thought of with this episode is uh, in the end, uh, the conundrum, who is one of the circus freaks in the show, uh, a very famous one from the time, from the Jim Rose Circus, uh, it's implied that he eats Leonard at the end of the episode because you see the conundrum getting attacked in the way that the other victims were, and then you see him kind of laying on the ground and kind of rubbing his stomach as if his stomach hurts, and then he says, you know, Scully asked him what's wrong, and he said, he says, must have been something I ate. And that's only the, the only line he says all episode. So then I was thinking, you know, is eating somebody a uh, self-defense for them trying to gnaw into your stomach? <laughs> Probably. I mean, <laughs> is it a sufficient self-defense? <laughs> was there a less, you know, uh, hostile means to take care of this lethal threat? Because he knew it was lethal. Well, it was definitely trying to kill him. He knew exactly what was happening. <laughs> I mean, him first. <laughs> yeah, it's, wow, that is a, and the other one that's actually a clean constitutional issue is after arresting somebody, the right to counsel. Right, right. So, uh, other nice things about this episode is Julian Anderson comes across as very strong. Mm-hmm. When one character uh, asks her if she knows anyone who can get out of the straight jacket in under three minutes. Her reply is, fortunately, no. And, like, she has these wonderful zingers. It's the great Scully episode. My fav- One of my very favorite scenes in the entire series of The X-Files is where one of the circus freaks offers her a bag of crickets to eat, and, like, as a snack, just to kind of test her, because she and Mulder are so obviously the, you know, squares in this community, and they're kind of testing her, and she just, you know, unflappably just reaches in there, takes one, and eats it appears to eat it. Later she shows Mulder that it was actually sleight of hand. She actually hides the cricket away. But in the moment, she's just so cool and calm and collected, and she just meets that challenge. And that's just, that's the scully I love. That's the, 
the reason the character is just so awesome. Gillian uh, Anderson played a brilliantly strong female lead. And there were others at that time as well, but she's probably one of the more classic ones. And when you think early 90s, you also think James Cameron's Aliens. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Weaver. So, you know, they, sure. they do exist. It, it totally cuts down the argument that they can't write a Wonder Woman script because we have a long legacy of very strong female leads. On yeah, that. and Jillian really, with, with Scully, I think she's still, still to be matched on the small screen as far as a, a strong female, strong, intelligent, logical female lead. Well, playing Ahab's wife in the Moby Dick remake, she did a brilliant job at, you know, at that. Mm -hmm. and, you know, definitely not, uh, she's definitely a force to be reckoned with. She's also got a new show um, that came out uh, a couple months ago on, on the BBC, actually. It's a British show called The Fall. I highly recommend people check that out. She plays a detective in charge of a serial killer investigation in Belfast, and Talk about a strong female character, why she'll blow your socks off. And uh, she is in, you know, in her late 40s now, and boy, does she look great, too. Rock on. I'll, I'll, <laughs> uh, so let's talk about one of the other episodes that we identified mm -hmm. that has great legal issues, and that is Small Potatoes. Small Potatoes, written by Vince Gilligan of Breaking Bad fame. Uh, he was actually one of the regular writers on the X-Files and wrote some of its funniest and kind of softest episodes, which I know is funny to, to fans of Breaking Bad because not known as a softer. I guess it's a pretty funny show, but not known as a soft show. Um, and he wrote this episode, which is one of the great ones. Uh, other interesting thing about this episode is one of the other X-Files writers, Darren Morgan, plays the starring role of Eddie Van Blunt in this episode. So he's also a lot of, a lot of good writer talent on this one. This is another one of my favorites, absolute favorites. Although I had to kind of examine why it was my favorite in watching it for this purpose. And this is an episode where we have um, Eddie Van Blunt, who is a kind of no-count janitor who works at a, at a hospital, kind of not done much with his life. But Eddie has one incredible talent, which is that he is able to transform his face and his body into that of anybody he sees. And so instead of using this, you know, for good in the world, you know, to stop crime or to promote peace or something like that, he uses it to, frankly, rape a bunch of women and impregnate them with his with his seed so that they all have his, his children. And the, re, the way he gets to them is that he works for a hospital that has a fertility clinic in it. And so these women all come because they can't, their husbands can't get them pregnant. So he turns into their husband and husbands and does the job for them. And the reason that Mulder and Scully get involved is because Eddie, along with the uh, amazing ability to transform into anybody else, also has a vestigal tail which means he has a tail, and he passes that feature on to all of his offspring. So they see a pattern of babies being born in a small town, five or six of them all with pretty significant tails. So they come down to check that out, uh, despite Scully being a little bit skeptical, as always, of why they should do that. And uh, I'll hand it over to Josh to tell, tell you about the hilarious geeks moment that, the, that this episode starts out with. So... Four of the five women who get raped um, are married. The fifth is a single mom and turns out dated Eddie in high school and thought he was a loser and regretted it. But she was also a Star Wars fan and claims that she got knocked up by Luke Skywalker because Mark Hamill came over. And, and it was Eddie impersonating Mark Hamill. Now, unfortunately, they did not get Mark Hamill to do the episode, which would have been entertaining. Would have been awesome, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if they even bothered asking or, or that, <laughs> who knows. That, that would have been entertaining. So out of the gate, you think she's, you know, this is a nut job that, and her kid has a tail, so maybe there's something in the water or something going on. Uh, but they identify with DNA that all the five kids have the same father as if the tale wasn't a dead giveaway right <laughs> and that definitely leads to some very strong legal issues as josh and i have both said these women were raped by eddie 
despite the fact that, you know, four of them thought they were having relations with their husbands, and one of them thought she was sleeping with Luke Skywalker, which made her pretty happy, as she mentions uh, during that, that pivotal scene that she wore 368 times and is hoping to break 400 by Memorial Day. <laughs> little little uh, hilarity there in the episode. But it really does lead to uh, discussion of legal issues surrounding consent. So these women, you know, Scully and Mulder both characterize it as rape within the episode. But there is an interesting wrinkle to it that these women really did think they were sleeping with somebody that they were, you know, happy to do that with. And for all intents and purposes, he was the person that they thought he was physically. He had become the other person. So there's no real precedent for this. It's not like he was impersonating somebody by, you know, putting on a costume or, or, or using, you know, lights and mirrors. He actually was that other person. But I think that, you know, other than the fact that, you know, he wasn't actually the other person, the, the important issue is that mentally, inside, he wasn't that person. And he intended to do them harm. And had they known that, they wouldn't have consented or they were unable to give consent because of that. It is one of the strangest identity theft issues because the identity theft statutes don't quite get into literally becoming the other person. <laughs> but you would still make the college try in charging the guy over oh, yeah. with that. At least I would if I were a DA or a U.S. attorney and this was a federal crime. So you have that wrinkle as well, which is very bizarre. Uh, you then get into paternity issues. You know, mm-hmm. what are his legal obligations as a father? You know, and when you look at, uh, you know, the, the obligations of a rapist who knocked up a victim, uh, you know, I didn't research that just because it is it's strange and horrible uh, for, you know, and I know there's case law on this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that, that's pretty dark. I think all obligations is attached, yeah. Although not rights, I don't think. I would agree with that. I would, I don't think, no court on God's green earth would give a rapist rights for child visitation or anything Mm -hmm. like that, but they would be happy to take income away. Exactly. Exactly. And yeah, the, the, the the thing that I said, you know, this is one of my favorite episodes and I really had to reexamine that because I kind of felt that in this episode and and a couple other episodes of the X-Files as well, for, for those who are well-versed, uh, postmodern Prometheus comes to mind. Um, the X-Files kind of plays that consent issue for laughs a bit, and it's a, it's a little uncomfortable. Um, you know, they, they, they kind of they try to skate over it by saying, you know, in fact, the character of Eddie says it. He says, I don't understand, you know, why, what's, what's wrong here? Everybody's happy. These women couldn't have children. Uh, I made it so that they could have children. They thought they were sleeping with their husband. Um, everybody gets what they want. So where's the crime? He says to Mulder and Scully. And, you know, the lawyers in the room go, ah, the crime's right in front of your face. It's a crime of rape. Uh, but you kind of get the, the feeling that the show's writers and creators are maybe kind of advancing that idea a little bit because it is played for laughs and it is played lightheartedly. Of course, we wouldn't have an amazing episode if it were if it weren't for that. Yeah, and in it, it, I mean, at least everyone from the FBI agrees that this is rape. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But when you look at this one in postmodern Prometheus, you know, like that one is like utterly horrible. Yeah. I remember, you know, that was on while I was in law school. Mm -hmm. The next day, a bunch of us talking are like, this leaves the message that rape was okay. Yeah. I mean, consent after the fact. And it's like, this is really misogynistic and Right. Disturbing. Yeah. It's like, it's never okay. No, no. And, and the fact that, the, that it's played lightheartedly and played for laughs is, is a little bit uncomfortable, uh, despite the fact that the episode is a classic and I, I still do love it. Definitely watching it this time made me really aware of that fact. Um, but, you know, there are all other legal issues in the episode as well that maybe we should, we should talk about. Yeah, let's let's move away from the comfortable <laughs> subject of rape, so we can bring right. it back into the podcast now. It's, it's yeah. now a safe place. Uh, but that is, we have a shapeshifter. Yep. He impersonates the police officer, 
and Agent Mulder. So now you have issues, and, and Caitlin gets credit for both of these, of uh, impersonating a police officer and impersonating a federal agent. Caitlin, what else would attach to that impersonation issue? Oh, geez, now you're pop quizzing me. <laughs> well, filing a false report as a federal agent. Um, there's a scene where he plays with Mulder's gun in uh, his apartment. If the, if the gun goes off, discharging of a federal agent's firearm. Uh, you know, breaking and entering into Mulder's apartment. He, 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 he goes into the apartment. He has the key, but he's not supposed to be there. Um, the booking officer, he... I think he cold talks him after he turns into him. So you've got, you've got that, that, that issue as well. Uh, you know, driving, if he go if he drives away in the patrol car, that's another charge. Um, I, I just think there's so many issues. I, I don't know if have I missed any. I, those are all that I saw. Okay. <laughs> there might be a couple others with entering the FBI building, but you know. Right, right. Yeah, he might have probably like like talking with Skinner about a classified report. There would be some impropriety around that. There's got to be, and so I mean, like this heavily reminds me of the going back to Davis and, and Professor Peterman's uh, political theory class, Ring of Gaijis. That you you take a good man who who's then given a ring that can turn him invisible, he'll kill the king and sleep with his wife. Right. And, and the shapeshifter does that. Yeah, he pretty much does. He doesn't kill anyone, but he does obviously show zero moral compass. Mm-hmm. And, and then, oh, go ahead. No, no, you first. Well, you said you said he doesn't kill anyone, but somebody does die on his watch. That's another source of legal issues in this. Um, the agents go to investigate Eddie at, at his house, and his father answers the door. And they end up talking to his father, but through a little verbal slip, um, it's revealed that it's actually Eddie impersonating his fault, his father. He actually uses Mulder's name. He says, agent Mulder, something, something, something. And Mulder says, wait, I didn't tell you my name. And he says, well, she told me to Scully. Good actor, by the way. Yeah. He, I guess he has to be with this particular skill. And Scully says, no, I didn't. And then, you know, he takes off running and it's basically Eddie impersonating his father. And that leads them to find Eddie's real father sealed up with quicklime in the uh, walls of the attic of the house. So he's uh, definitely got some, some legal issues around that. Um, the one that I, I thought of was improper disposal of a body. Josh, I know you had another one around the corpse itself. I went around desecration of a corpse. Right. And both probably would, would apply. And, again, this is where the DA would probably make the judgment call or just hit him with everything. Mm-hmm. And that would really depend on yeah, the DA in West Virginia on what he's – or she is up for. Mm -hmm. But with impersonating dad, the reason he was impersonating his dead father was to collect social security checks. That's right. Which would be a federal crime. So this issue is, you know, this uh, episode is riddled with legal issues. So many issues. (laughs) Plus kind of just a creepy feeling just because the rape aspect. Mm -hmm. Definitely creepy. And, um, I, I think one of the best parts of the uh, the episode, one of the most uh, kind of subtle points that they make with the script is that Eddie Van Blunt, he's really a loser. You know, he's a janitor. He can't, you know, when you see him in his regular incarnation, he's nothing to look at. He's not very smart. You know, he's just kind of a schlub. And he gets to go impersonate Agent Mulder and be Agent Mulder. And you can tell that he's just like, he keeps talking about, you're a good-looking man. You know, you, you David Duchovny, boy. You're a good-looking guy. I can't wait to go have your life. And he actually goes, you know, and breaks into Mulder's apartment and listens to his answering machine. And you know what he finds out? He finds out that Mulder's a loser. And he doesn't have any friends. And he doesn't have a girlfriend. He doesn't have women calling him every day. Well, not real women. <laughs> uh, and he's just, you know, he and he says to him, he's like, you know, I, I'm a loser by birth, but you're a loser by choice. You know, how can you live this way with your face? And boy, is that a great point uh, in the X-Files. You know, it's, it, 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 it's such a subtle and interesting uh, um, commentary on, on David Duchovny's character of Mulder. And you had a great uh, observation about the acting in the episode that went with that. You know, David Duchovny does a caricature of himself. And he really shows his acting shops of 
play you being somebody else who's a dweeb. And he <laughs> does it well, you know, you know, reciting lines from Taxi Driver and, you know, just like rolling with it. And like he, he had fun with that. Now, something that did bother me, um, and I don't know if this is guys just like not being able to write a female character because God knows I couldn't write a script with a woman and, and not have her sound like a robot. But you have Scully, you know, who has the impersonated Mulder show up at her doorstep at 2 o'clock in the morning and to have a glass of wine. And, you know, it's Brunt trying to seduce her. And you think she would have noticed that this is completely out of Mulder's character. Fox would never do these things. He's married to his job. You know, this is a boring guy who hangs out with some conspiracy theory guys who's into UFOs. And now I'm going to, you know, basically get seduced. And, like, that just seemed very out of character for a very strong character. Yeah, I agree. I, I, and I think that was probably the point where I was kind of most, I don't know if I would use the word like disgusted, maybe disappointed with the creators of the show that they would include Scully in that group of women that were duped by Van Blunt because like you said, it was so out of character and she knew what Mulder's suspicions were around, you know, that case that he thought Eddie could turn into other people. Um, she knew that Mulder wasn't acting like Mulder and, you know, it, I, I agree that letting Scully be the dupe, you know, the X-Files is guilty of that on several occasions, but in this episode, it, it sat particularly sourly with me too. Even though when I watched this as a 19 year old, like that was my favorite part of the episode because I was a relationshiper and they almost kissed, even though it wasn't really Mulder, you know, looking at it, watching it again, I was like, Oh, this is really kind of disturbing in a lot of ways and, and embarrassing for Scully when Mulder breaks in on them in the middle. He's about, Ben Blunt's about to kiss her right before it happens, the real Mulder bursts into the room and breaks up, you know, anything that's happening. Poor Scully must have been so embarrassed. Well, that means, again, it shows he's the good wingman, the good partner, that his first instinct was he's going to go and try to seduce my partner, so I'm going to go stop him. Mm-hmm. So good on good character play with him. Mm-hmm. But it's, I'm watching this, you know, last night thinking, like, she's smarter than this. Yeah, definitely. You know, the, you know, Brunt misspelled Federal Bureau of Investigation twice in a report. <laughs> it's like, those should be like big warning signs of like, something's wrong here. Yeah, right? And then, like, and then you kind of wonder, well, was she suspending disbelief because she really wanted that to happen? Does she have a crush on Mulder? I don't know. We're only in season th- uh, four here with Small Potatoes, so... Maybe. I don't know. It's, it's hard to get inside a character like Scully's head, especially when the writers played kind of fast and loose with uh, their intentions toward each other for episode to episode. But, yeah. Uh, agreed. So let's talk about one that aired while we were at Davis. Yes. And this aired right after Thanksgiving. So I remember watching it in the student lounge with a couple other students Right after Thanksgiving. Yep. Because, like Mulder, I was the loser that immediately came back to school so I could study because that was was the fun college student that I was. (laughs) Always studying. Uh, But it's the Tunguska, and God, my Russian's horrible. Tunguska, I think. Tunguska, something like that. It's a conspiracy arc episode. Mm Mm-hmm. And why don't you talk about yeah, it's it's a complex story. With it is, it's a bigger, it's a larger part of what they call the mythology of the X Files. That's the name that fans give to the, the series of episodes that run throughout the entire ten year, nine years, ten years of the series that uh, are about the alien conspiracy to take over the Earth and you know turn the humans into drones and then basically destroy us um, and our governments. Uh, um, What's the word I'm looking for? Our government's, you know, help with that plot. Uh, so this is one of those. And the kind of, I guess, the overarching plot points of the episode is are that Mulder comes into contact with Alex Krychek, who is a longtime villain in the show, somebody who was originally an FBI agent assigned to work with Mulder, but went over to the other side and is a thoroughly bad guy. And... Um, 
at the same time that Mulder comes into contact with Krychek, uh, somebody tries to enter the U.S. with a diplomatic pouch carrying um, some very dangerous material. And that material, through a series of, we'll, we'll talk about in a minute with the legal issues, through a series of uh, bunglings uh, by some customs officers, gets released and infects uh, some of the characters with the black oil, which is the, the alien virus that, boy, I could get into a long explanation of the mythology as well. <laughs> but anyway, Crytek offers to, to take Mulder to uh, the pouch and, and find it for him. And various things occur as a result of that journey, including Krychek and Mulder ending up in Russia, in Tunguska, Russia, near where the Tunguska incident happened, which is supposedly a extraterrestrial and or asteroid that landed on Earth and flattened hundreds of acres of trees um, in the 30s, I believe it was, maybe. I, I didn't look it up. And uh, there are just, oh, and the other part of it is that Congress calls Scully in to testify about Mulder's whereabouts. So you can just imagine this is a treasure trove of legal issues. And Josh and I managed to spot a few of them. I'll, I'll let you start, Josh. <laughs> well, thank you. So there are all kinds of issues with this. And so let's start with the basics from the beginning of going through customs with a biohazard in a diplomatic bag. And before we start immediately thinking of the bad guy in Lethal Weapon 2 with diplomatic immunity, <laughs> uh, did, you did a little research on diplomatic bags. So I did. I did. I, I went down a Wikipedia black hole that started with, uh, with contempt of Congress and led to diplomatic pouches. Well, I'll talk about diplomatic pouches. Um, I was interested because they detain this guy at a, at a checkpoint, at just a general customs checkpoint in, a, in an airport in D.C. at Dulles. And he keeps claiming that, he, that what he's carrying is a diplomatic pouch and that he has diplomatic papers. And yet the customs agents still detain him. They still open the pouch. They still take out the contents. And, you know, which leads to, you know, very bad demise on, on both the part of both the agent and the courier. So I looked it up and actually found out that if you carry something across the border in a diplomatic pouch, federal agents are not allowed to question you about it. They are not allowed to, taint, to detain you, and they are not allowed to, to tamper with the pouch in any way. However, there are some things that you need to do, which is, number one, the pouch needs to be marked diplomatic pouch. So I did not actually go back last night and look, but I don't think the bag was marked. And I think that might have been, I mean, I don't know if the customs agent, you know, knew about that, but, but that, that was kind of a weaseling out of that situation. Um, but had the pouch been marked, that everything that the customs agents did would have been against uh, diplomatic law. And I read some fascinating stories about what's been carried in diplomatic pouches, including hostages, people, because the pouch doesn't have to actually be a pouch. It can be a box or a crate or a, a cargo vehicle, a freight shipping, shipping container. So there have been some fascinating items, and if you go to the Wikipedia entry, carried in diplomatic pouches across borders during extremely tense times in, the hist in world history. Uh, and so... Uh, Reading about this, I thought, you know, there, there, there could be legal issues for those customs agents around opening that pouch, depending on how it was marked, Just, aside from the, the death issues that resulted from when they opened it. Well, the, the second one with the asteroid bit was marked. Mm -hmm. And so, but the first one was plain, so I think that's how they got What was the canister, yeah, I think yeah. it was plain. I think you're right. I think it was, so that would be my, my read on that. So that is fascinating. Because I look at this, it's like, well, biohazard. They're not labeled. Yeah. You know, but if it's a diplomatic pouch, it's okay. <laughs> yeah, diplomatic papers. But the, like, metal suitcase was not labeled. And he purposely mm -hmm. did not have the combination for it. So he couldn't mm -hmm. open it. And so uh, this was the customs agent who ended up ruining his life by doing this. Yes, having little black slugs crawl up under his skin and squish out into his eyes, which... Seems like not a very nice fate. I, I'm, I'm not cool with that. And I remember every time I watch that, I'm always going like, ew, ew, ew. ew. I, I can't put on a contact lens. So the idea of black ooze taking over really does Oh, work. yeah. Awful. So one of the other things, because this is 1996 when this airs. 
Uh, airport security was extremely different. different. Mm-hmm. Now, if you watch the original airport movie where there was, you could just walk onto the airplane with a bomb. You could see the the change over over forty years, but. Uh, this was, you know, there wasn't the motion sensor, so when the guy turned around to run back through security, no alarms were going off. Right. Uh, easy access to the flight line. You know, mm-hmm. you can't be impossible today for that to happen without people tackling you uh, from the TSA like nobody's business. Just, yeah, and just general other people in the airport, too, probably. It's... Because of 9-11, you're not going to see passengers go down without a fight. Nope. You will. They will. It's like, well, if I'm going to die, I might as well fight and not. Right. <laughs> which is what happened with the shoe bomber. People tackled him. It's like, we're, we're not taking this. So, but this is 1996. It's still a very different United States. Totally different world, yeah. And so, and we hadn't gone through that yet. So, we have, this is also the era of right-wing militias. You know, Oklahoma, right. Oklahoma City was 1995, and they're out chasing bad guys who are from a right-wing militia and with a large explosive device. And so this is, so they're pulling from the current times. So, like, that is important to keep in mind. Mm-hmm. But... Um, this leads to the arrest of Krychak. And, you know, Caitlin, do you want to get into some of the issues that you see right away with arresting someone? Well, actually, I think I'll pass that one back over to you because I did not write that one down. And I was, <laughs> I was, I totally, I totally missed that one. And I thought, you know, there's some issues around that, but I'll let Josh do that one. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> okay, well, he's arrested and, you know, there wasn't really Miranda rights being given. And that was, I think, at least I didn't notice it. and I, was, I didn't hear any, yeah, now that you mentioned that. And part of it is Krychek is a known bad guy. Mm-hmm. Perhaps killed Mulder's father. And, you know, and so they kind of skip over basic constitutional norms. And part of the issue is Krychek claims to have more information about where more explosives are. That's right. And so they end up with this weird situation of that they've detained him and that they've arrested him, but they didn't Mirandaize him. Mm-hmm. And now they're trying to use him as a cooperating witness. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a little weird with how they do that, mm-hmm. but they then Scully goes off in one direction to chase an issue and Mulder needs a place to put Krychek. So he takes him to Skinner's office. Skinner had had issues with Krychak. Yes. Knocks on his door at, what, 2 o'clock in the morning, 3 o'clock in the morning. And, you know, we do have Skinner, who people love seeing without a shirt, because he might be a (laughs) Mr. Beefcake. (laughs) Awful handsome man. So they enjoyed working that in for people who enjoy that. And, I mean, I feel like I should hit the gym now. But I know. Strong looking. When asked, well, what should we do here? Is it bring him inside? And he immediately decks him. Yeah, it's a pretty hilarious scene. He's like, uh, Mulder's like, I guess uh, I need a safe house for a witness. And Skinner's like, sure. Then they got Krychek's handcuffed, and Skinner just socks him in the gut. <laughs> you know, like, as a lawyer, I should not be okay with this. He deserved it, though. You gotta say, you gotta admit it. <laughs> yeah, 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 I'd be like, oh, he slipped. Oops, uh, my fist broke my fall. Uh, he handcuffs Krychek to the balcony, which Krychek says, "I will freeze out here." And Skinner replies, "Think one thoughts." <laughs> and so I'm like, you're dealing with. Um, we're not following the law at all at this point. Yeah, we're, we're outside. We're renegades at this point. Yeah. <laughs> we're outside any law. We're now bordering on kidnapping and torture at this. False imprisonment for sure. With, with you know the associate director for the FBI who's like, yeah. oh, I'll, I'll hit him again. And right. So that was. It's like that. That's just none of that's okay. Absolutely. None of it. Everything to do with Crytek in this episode is. Breaking several laws, but you know what? The takeaway is that it's crycheck, so you don't really care. <laughs> I say hit him again. Maybe you know, if I were a criminal defense attorney, I'd feel differently. I don't know. <laughs> you 
isn't it? You just like look at how bad he is. I know. But what they were doing is just like so against the law, it's not funny. I know. And Krychek ends up defending himself on the balcony mm-hmm. and pulls a guy off and falls off the balcony to his death. And so you now have Skinner's home as a crime scene with Mulder right. taking Krychek out. So you get, I mean, there are just tons of issues with Oh, yeah. It. I mean, definitely Krychek murdered the guy, but was it in self-defense? I don't, I don't know if, I mean, I, could, I don't know if there was actually a self-defense um, argument at that point because this agent comes out onto the deck looking for the diplomatic pouch. Krychek's out there handcuffed to the deck. He conceals himself by jumping over the other side and hanging by his handcuff on the other side of the deck. The guy finds him. There's a struggle, but there's not. It's not clear that the guy is trying to kill Krychek, but Krychek just pulls him over off the deck and tosses him to his death. So I don't know if, um, you know, aside from all his other crimes, if, if Krychek would have a very good self-defense argument for that for that murder. No, no. And we get into issues with the FBI. Are we now, like, aiding and abetting after the fact? Right, right. Which is and you can tell some wheels got greased because, you know, the, the, the detective – on the case, the local detective, the DC detective that finds the body, you know, splattered on the ground, as soon as he realizes that, or Skinner tells him that he's a, a senior assistant director at the FBI, the investigation all of a sudden kind of shifts back over to the FBI and the U.S. Senate, actually. Uh, so it, it's no longer a local, uh, you know, issue, jurisdiction, yeah, of <laughs> the local cops. <laughs> Then we get into a weird issue with we visit a UN employee who was mm-hmm. able to help get forged documents for Mulder and Krychek to go to the former Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. And you get into, I'm like, right out of the gate, I think of, so we have forged travel documents to enter another country. We have a federal agent who looks like he's gone rogue in order to uphold the law, which is a funky place to be. Mm-hmm. It's now starting to smack of having your own personal foreign policy. Right. We do not allow. So weird issues there. And the other one, while the Senate does have oversight of the executive branch, as you know, both houses of Congress do, the X-Files plays fairly heavily with that, where it almost seems like the Senate has executive pool mm-hmm. over the FBI, which not a senator. I, I haven't worked in D.C. I don't know if they do that sort of thing, but that seems to raise a weird separation of powers issue. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because the Senate can't give FBI agents like direction. Right, right. Yeah, and there's an interesting scene where, um, you know, once Mulder's Harried off, harried off to uh, Russia to Tunguska with Krychek. The Senate uh, is still Senate, or certain senators are still looking for this diplomatic pouch with the with the rock or the instrument that has the alien virus. They pull uh, Skinner and Scully into a senator's office, and they're asking them questions about, you know, why did you try to get this pouch? Why did you arrest this man at the airport? Why, why, why? Where's Mulder? Da, 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 and you know. Scully's being reticent about you know, answering these questions. And the senator says to her, you know, perjury is a very serious defense, especially for federal agents. My question to figure it out is whether making a false statement to a U.S. senator is just automatically perjury, or was he alluding to the fact that he was going to holler in front of a committee and make her swear an oath, and then if she said that in front of the committee, then it would then be perjury? Uh, it was a very interesting statement to me from a legal point of view. If it were correct, okay, then I get that. But it, it kind of seemed to me like he was talking about the situation in the here and now. So maybe something in need of some more research. Yeah, she wasn't under oath. Yeah, not under oath. I mean, is there an implied oath if you're talking to the senator and during, as part of an investigation? I don't know. It's very strange. It's not like, you know, with an attorney having a duty of candor to the court Mm -hmm. that we always have. So it's a little weird. Um, Maybe it was just Hollywood, you know, not getting it quite right. And we know that happened a few times. So 
that. We know that's happened a few times. Yep, maybe just a couple times. But then that does, you know, the, the, the episode is kind of out of order, out of sequence time-wise. So we see Scully in the, uh, in the office with the senator, but there's also a scene at the beginning where she actually is testifying in front of a committee. And they're asking her, you know, where is Mulder? And they're asking her about the pouch and the contents. And she won't answer as to Mulder's whereabouts. She won't, she won't answer the question. And as she states on the grounds that she's afraid, she fears for Mulder's life should she re review, uh, reveal his whereabouts, at which, case, at which point the senator says, we're going to hold you in contempt of Congress if you don't respond to this uh, request, which also sent me on a, on a Wikipedia junket reading about contempt of Congress, because I was trying to figure out if there are any defenses to contempt of Congress, you know, or, or not defenses, but, um, you know, justifications for not revealing information to Congress. And would those just be like the general justifications for not revealing information if it puts somebody's life in danger? Um, I couldn't find anything, you know, anything special about it. And I, what I figured is that the weighing of, you know, jailing somebody for it's uh, not more than, not less than one day, but not more than, I believe, 90 days, I have to look at the, the entry again, uh, is less of a ill than, you know, than having uh, Congress not have its, its, its needs, its, its requests met. So an interesting issue there. Yeah, it makes me immediately think of McCarthy hearings. Mm -hmm. You know, and are you a member of the Communist Party and to name names, that sort of ugly line of questioning. Mm -hmm. She might have been able to have made a Fifth Amendment, uh, of, you know, defense at that point because they were operating so outside of the law because of the situation. Right. That, that might have been a more appropriate uh, one. It might have started instant prosecution of her. Uh, with with issues, but um, that would have been in, in you know a, a different tact. Uh, but she actually makes a comment about lawyers actually in this the continuation of it as well that lawyers ask questions for things off topic when they don't want the answers to the things that are on topic. <laughs> in which that comes in part two. We'll talk about that another time. But there. Yeah. Tons of issues in every episode of the X Files, and so it's it's always a lot of fun to go back and watch these. Um, now, with our attorney point of view, as opposed to just high school, college, or law student point of view. Right. Um, but now, this is one of the shows that spanned from college to graduating law school and joining the workforce, which was a very you know a couple other ones meet that come close but this is the only one that actually went all the way through the entire yeah. so I mean for people our age this show started and you and I are both in our late 30s this show started when we were in high school even if we weren't watching it yet uh, and it went all the way through to like you said graduate school or being in the workforce is nine years very formative years and it was arguably you know the best show on television at the time or one of the best so those of us who like you know good good entertainment and good things. We were all watching it together at the same time, and it made a big impression. Yeah, it, it was, well, this was a really good point in TV history. You had X-Files, also in 1993, you had Deep Space Nine start, you mm -hmm. had Babylon 5 start, uh, Star Trek The Next Generation ended in 1993, and you there was a lot of good programming you know, during that span. You also get Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Angel, you know, there are all these good so much great stuff. Yeah, and and not that there aren't good things on now. You know, I'm not watching TV as much because I work for food. But, <laughs> uh, but they, you know, I'm optimistic about the future and, you know, a couple new shows coming out and hoping they're good. Yep. Although they'll never be as good as the X-Files. <laughs> I'm in place. And I want to believe there'll be more classic shows out there. I hope the everybody's noticed my, my faux poster up here in the background. I actually did have the full-sized poster in my college dorm room when Josh and I were in school together. That's my roommate. I had a Canadian roommate, and he had <laughs> one as well. So 
a popular item at that time. <laughs> they, were. they were very popular. Now, there's talk of them doing another movie. And I know. I'm a, I have a mixed reaction about that because uh, I saw the last movie and I was a bit disappointed. And I, I kind of just feel like that maybe it's time to let, let it sail away on its graceful progress. But I don't know. I definitely go see it. Yeah, you know, when you have litigation, you know, that follows on, like, who and what's right, and that's part of the reason why the one from, God, what, 2003 or 2004, whenever you know, the last one came out, was more of the monster of the week. Mm-hmm. And what they, what I read was they might do something that deals with the deadline had passed for the alien invasion. Oh, interesting. Well, see, I would be interested in that. I wouldn't mind seeing that. I would... Again, cautiously optimistic. I want mm-hmm. to believe Chris Carter would do the right thing. That's right. <laughs> so, oh, Caitlin, this has been a lot of fun. And it sure has. I mean, like we, um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about doing one, a couple of the comic conventions in the future, seeing if they can, if they'll accept an idea. Or oh, yeah. this is the dream. If we do get nominated for the Geeky Awards again, or not, well, we were just an honoree. If we actually get on, uh, get nominated. I would love to have a table of e-discovery people, maybe a couple of judges at the ceremony. I think that. Would oh, be make sure I get a ticket, man. Oh, <laughs> we get awesome if we're able to pull that off. So, oh, that would be fun. Uh, to dream, to dream of, a, <laughs> uh, and have a wonderful party with like-minded attorneys. Like-minded attorney geeks, I love it. There are a bunch of us. So. <laughs> Well, that, well, everyone, thank you. And again, thank you, Caitlin. And um, we look forward to, to seeing you in the very near future. Thank you, Josh. And remember, everybody, trust no one. The truth is out there. <laughs>